In the beginning was the word, and the word was with Patrick. The great everything ain't nothing to fuck with. The great everything ain't nothing to fuck with. The Patrick Daniel ain't nothing to fuck with. Patrick brings a certain something to the conversation around philosophy that I particularly find fascinating. This is The Great Everything, a source for all culture and philosophical questions from a slightly unhinged perspective. <laughs> Absolutely love, love, love your little bit about jazz. Life's big questions. What makes you you? It's quite puzzling. You are going to die. Okay, so this is one of my favorite topics. I thank you for bringing it up. You're too much, Patrick. Honestly, you are just too much. <laughs> you silver-tongued devil, you. Hello, all you subjective experiences extended over time, responding to various names and possessing different qualities depending on the precise moment you're asked to give an account of yourself. This is The Great Everything, an exploration into the stuff that makes us human. I too am a subjective experience responding to Patrick, and I once was a banking lawyer, until I quit to dedicate my life to the journey of becoming a better human, hopefully, and sharing any tidbits I learned along the way with you guys. I found this really interesting article by the Brazilian philosopher Celso Vieira, titled Which is more fundamental, processes or things? And it contains some important intuitions that I really want to discuss with you guys. Now, you might recall that recently, it was either the last episode or the one before that, I was talking about our atomized way of looking at the world. I don't know which episode it was, but it gets a bit muddled, but you can look for it. And the idea is this, that we see things as whole things, as objects with clear shapes and extensions and boundaries. We see the world as a world of things, from an atom, that's a thing, to an ant, that's another thing, to a rock, also a thing, to a dishwasher, yet another thing, to even a galaxy, that's a thing too. So to us, what exists, exists as an object with specific spatial and temporal limits and specific qualities. But what if that's a wrong way of looking at the world? Because when we think of the world in terms of things, of objects, of just stuff, we run into all sorts of paradoxes and philosophical questions that are really difficult to solve. Some might say impossible. Zeno's paradox is a classic example, I'll talk about that in a bit. Or the question about personal identity. Are you, as an object, the same person, the same thing you were a year ago? Even if 98% of the atomic makeup of your body has changed in the meantime? That's a true fact, by the way. The atoms that were in your body a year ago? 98% of them are no longer there. Some of them are floating in space, some of them are in someone's coffee, some of them are in someone else's ball sack, and I can guarantee that some of your atoms from last year have been flushed down the toilet by someone who wasn't you. That's a scary thought, your atoms from last year being shat out by a stranger. But the question then is, are you still you if your atoms have changed? Your other qualities have changed. Are you still the same stuff? Or the question about the glass, right? Half full or half empty? Now the question is a paradox because it presupposes that what matters here is the actual amount of water in the glass. You know, the fact that half the volume of the glass is occupied by molecules of water. And that's meant to be some kind of test of whether you're an optimist or pessimist. But in fact, what matters with this question isn't how much water is in the glass. It isn't how much stuff is in the glass, but the direction of change. In other words, if someone is pouring water into the glass, in which case it's half full, or if someone is drinking the water out of the glass, in which case it's half empty. So 
That's another way of saying what matters isn't the stuff, but the process. And this is what the Greek philosopher Heraclitus was talking about with his everything flows, pantarei. You can't step into the same river twice because it's not the same river anymore and it's also not the same you anymore. It's all just constant flux and change. This is what Stoics believed and also many Buddhists and Taoists and many different types of Hindu. And that's even something that gels with our current scientific understanding that supports this process-based way of looking at the world. I mean, sure, we're tempted to look out there and break it all down into constituent parts, building blocks, molecules, atoms, particles, Planck units, things, objects, you know, stuff. But we now know that an electron isn't an object. It's not a thing. It's more like fluctuating energy spread out across a field. So it's got all sorts, it's a wave, it's a potentiality. Evolution, that's another process, just like photosynthesis and reproduction and growth. And any single moment within these processes, any attempt to fix a point in time to determine a thing as a thing, produces paradoxes. Who am I? Am I who I was yesterday? Am I who I'm going to be tomorrow? What if those people are different from me? Are they different people? Looking at yourself through the process lens is starting to make a whole lot more sense, isn't it? So maybe when people ask you who you are, you should stop describing yourself as a person and start describing yourself just as a life. But what if everything in the world, from a molecule to a human being to a star, weren't actually an object, but instead a process? That's what I want to talk about. Most people with a passing interest in philosophy have probably heard of Zeno's paradox. In fact, there's more than one, but they all have something in common because they boil down to a critique of sorts of how we experience motion and time. The most famous paradox is the one where Achilles, who you might remember from films such as Troy, and who's notoriously fast, fleet-footed Achilles is what Homer keeps referring to him as again and again. So Achilles, he's got to compete in a race against the tortoise, who you might remember from, I don't know, Super Mario Brothers. And because the tortoise is slower, he gets a head start. So you hear this and you go, oh, fine, right, head start and everything, but the outcome here is obvious. Achilles is going to catch up with the tortoise and give it a good kick in its ass it deserves. That turtle is soup, etc., etc. Except no. Because Zeno says, even though Achilles is faster, before he reaches the tortoise, he has to get halfway there first. He has to reach the midway point. And in the time it takes Achilles to get there, the tortoise will have moved on a little bit creating a whole new midway point. Now Achilles will have to reach that new midway point before he gets to the tortoise. And by the, by the time he gets there, the tortoise will have moved on again. Now hold on, you'll say, the tortoise has only moved a tiny bit, so what difference does it make? Well the point is that no matter how fast Achilles is, it takes an amount of time, even like if it's a fraction of a second, to cover any distance. And whatever that time, it always gives the tortoise time to budge a tiny bit, a fraction of a millimeter maybe, but it's still distance. There is still a quantifiable distance that the tortoise moves, even if it's tiny. And that movement creates a gap. And Achilles needs to cross that gap. And every time the tortoise moves, there's a new gap that's created that Achilles needs to cross. And because distances can be divided infinitely, this continues on and on into infinity. So Zeno says, motion through time is impossible because no matter how close you want to move, there is always a midway that you have to reach first. 
and another before that, and another before, and so on and on and on, into a trillionth of a millimeter, however much, and even there you can divide it into another smaller distance that you have to cross. Another clearer example Zeno makes is his paradox with the arrow, that if you shoot an arrow, it stays still, because at any moment in time you freeze frame it, like you freeze time, the arrow occupies a certain amount of space that is finite. So it's not moving really, because you know, it can't move within a finite amount of space that it occupies, not if you stop time. So try this to make it clearer. Move your hand left to right. So before your hand moves even the tiniest bit, and I mean even like the first atom of your hand moves to the right, it has to have moved just a teeny bit before that to get there, and then a teeny bit before that, and so on and on and on and on. It's like a periodic number, you know, 0.99999 onto infinity. At what point does your hand stop being in one tiny bit of space and start being in the next tiny bit of space? At what precise split nanosecond does it go from being totally still to moving? Where exactly does 0 0.99999 meet 1? When does a moment become the next moment? At what point can you freeze frame it? Zeno suggests never. Because his take on reality suggests that while we experience time sequentially, actual movement between moments is impossible because all moments are separate. Every bit of space is separate. They, they, there's a gap that cannot be crossed. Kind of like single frames on a film reel, you know? It's all played very fast and it creates the illusion of motion, but there's still freeze frames. There is no movement between the frames. It's just an illusion of movement. So what's the point here? Because we know that in real life, Achilles is going to catch up with the tortoise. And as one famous rebuttal to Zeno went, if you see an arrow coming at you, you're going to duck. Well, that's it. Why does logic, because Zeno's arguments are logical, why does reason defy the way the world appears to us? There seems to be some difference, some gap between the world as it should work using our logical assumptions and how it actually does work. Maybe what's happening here is that Zeno is highlighting one of the pitfalls of looking at the world as a world of things. If you divide space and time up into precise millimeters and nanoseconds and Planck units, things, objects, and follow that to natural conclusion, then you run into weird paradoxes that just don't add up to what we see in the world. But maybe these units aren't the building blocks of existence. Maybe there's no freeze frame of the arrow. It's just pure motion. And time can't be divided into moments, but durations. In other words, Processes, not things. Can you dig it? Reef from Medicine Remix, obviously a huge fan of the show. Can you dig it? Please, please, please go ahead and do that. That series. Can you dig it? In this little walk we're taking through looking at the world around us, not as an object, a thing with a specific dimension, size, and extension, and boundaries, of course, but as processes. A world made up of processes. I guess we have to consider the ideas of time and space, which is what Zeno kind of brings into the equation. So starting with time, I think uh, my cat Golda has something interesting to say about this. See, she lives in Rome with uh, my mother, where I am now, and I'm told that every time I come to Rome, two to three days before I arrive, Golda goes and sleeps on my bed in my little room that I have here. and. That's before I arrive, so it's like she knows I'm coming. And then, and this is obviously familiar to all of you who have animals, a few days before I leave, 
she's starting to look sad, as if she felt that I were leaving. So there's many ways you can you can try to rationalize this. You can say, okay, she has some kind of sixth sense. She senses the future. She senses before I arrive. She senses before I leave. But one way of looking at it that kind of has stuck with me. I, I feel that it has something to it. Intuitively, I feel that there's some truth there, which doesn't make it true, of course. It's just what I believe, or right now happen to believe, is that maybe she has a different sense of now from what we have. Thinking of it in Zeno terms, in object terms, in thing terms, we live now as if it were a specific instant, a moment. This now, okay, that's gone, so now there's this now. Now, your now can be a second, it can be a nanosecond, a unit of Planck time, whatever. The point is, it is an instant. It is a freeze frame, right? Like those arrows in Zeno's paradox. However, what if now were actually not an instant, but a duration? What if it were a period? And what if everyone's sense of now were slightly different in terms of duration. So let's say Golda's sense of now is actually a few days long. That would explain how a few days before I arrive, she's already sleeping on my bed because she senses in her now that I'm kind of already there. I might not physically be there, but her now includes within it a feeling of me being there. And of course, before I leave, she's already sad because although I am there, her now, it already includes a feeling of me being gone. And that would explain so many things in our lives as well, including deja vu. Now as a period, and we, because we tend to atomize everything and see it as a discrete unit, we just live the now as an instant, and then it's gone. But actually now is a period that extends slightly into our past and slightly into our future. Whether it's a few days or a few weeks, depends. I find that idea fascinating. And I do think that if I could ask Golda about this, she would probably say, meow. Hello, Patrick. I love the metaphor of Golda and the now, and I completely disagree, but I think it's really adorable. And I'm very interested in the different kinds of nowiness and the squishiness of time. But what I think, what I suspect it is, is that she's picking up on the subtle body language of your mum before you're arriving and the subtle body language of you when you're going because these little creatures they are so observant I've spent a lot of time with my birds and for those tiny little brains they are really smart but time and nowness now that shit is squishy and it ain't as simple as the dickin' of that clock that's for sure so, yeah, though I don't agree with you about Golda, I definitely agree with you about... We're exploring this idea of looking at the world not as being composed by objects with clear, precise boundaries, but as being composed instead by processes, by growth, we might say. Or actually, we shouldn't say growth at all, because growth kind of 
it injects a value judgment into it, right? A sense of a positive directionality, I guess, because growth is usually considered positive, right? Well, unless it's a tumor, but that really is neither here nor there. So let's call it instead a continuum, right? Instead of things having clear boundaries between each other and therefore there being some kind of thing, a gap that separates item one from item two, instead they kind of all melt into each other, not just as objects or what we would call objects, but also as flows and like a river, basically. Everything kind of flows into the next thing, into one large process continuum. Now we've looked at why we might want to think that way. Zeno, the philosopher, he understands that we intuitively tend to atomize everything and look at them as objects, as things. So he takes us to the logical conclusion of that kind of reasoning by saying, okay, distances, we can reduce them to the smallest possible distance, and we can also reduce time to the smallest possible unit of time. And then we run into this paradox of how do we move from one moment in time to the next? How do we move from one distance unit to the next one? Because surely the arrow in his paradox, which is occupying a space at the moment, the space it is occupying, how does it move from that space to the next space it will occupy in the next moment without first occupying some intermediate space? So because you can do that into infinity, movement is kind of impossible. It, it seems, if you want it to be logical, that there has to be some kind of glitch. You know, rather than a continuous movement, there would have to be a glitch from one frame to the next frame for there to be the illusion of movement. So this is a paradox, of course. Yet, in our real life, we see that things do move, things do change. So why is it that we are so fixated on looking at things as being discreet. Discreet in this sense, I don't mean discreet as in, you know, a waiter who won't tell your wife that he saw you at the same restaurant with another woman yesterday, but discreet in the sense of something that is separate, its own little thing, its own little package. Zeno's paradox ultimately boils down to motion through time and how that would be impossible if the world were truly as atomized as we tend to think of it. But I also like to think about space a lot, and I've spoken about this before here on Anchor. Imagine you're Ant-Man, the Marvel superhero who can shrink, Hank Pym. Actually, no, scrap that. Imagine you're DC's version, the Atom, Ray Palmer, because DC is inherently better. The point is, you're a superhero who can shrink to a very, very small size. And now you have two bricks touching, one on top of each other. Actually, next to each other, let's make it easier. And you want to really find out where the two bricks touch. Now, we know that in real life, there are force fields basically pressing against each other, but we are trying to debunk the idea that things are objects with clear limitations. So imagine that everything is an object, not like some weird field that is a continuum, is a process, because it doesn't have a clear end or beginning. Things flow into each other when we're dealing with fields. But imagine instead we are talking about solid objects. Two bricks, right? So you shrink down and you get into the crack between the two bricks. And at some point, when you shrink, you will reach a point of contact between the two bricks. You will reach the ultimate point of contact, let's call it. But you realize once you're there, it's still a crack. And you can shrink down to a smaller size to get in that crack. In fact, you can shrink down to a size where that crack becomes like a canyon. And you go down into the crack until you reach another point of contact that is further down, much smaller. But then you can keep shrinking and keep shrinking. 
And now, if in this thought experiment you imagine that atoms are like little cubes or maybe circles or spheres or however you want to conceptualize atoms as actually objects, you know, with a density, you would still find a space where the two atoms touch and one, one in one brick and one atom belonging to the other brick where they touch and there's still a gap there, there's still a crack that you can shrink down until that looks like a canyon and keep shrinking further. The point is, if you see the world as atomized in terms of everything being a unique discrete entity, you soon realize that things can never touch. There is always a space between them and there's always space to go further. Basically that goes on until infinity. So what next? Right, but where does all of this leave us ultimately? I mean, sure, I find it interesting, but then again, I'm super nerdy, and this is stoner philosophy, and intellectual onanism is kind of my thing, so... But what's the point? How can this relate to us in any way? Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that if you follow the whole logic, our natural intuition of looking at the world as being composed by objects, discrete things, you follow that to its natural conclusion, you reach this problem, and the problem can be summarized in one word, and it's gaps. If things are discrete units, then there has to be a gap between each thing. There are gaps everywhere. So then the question is, how do we bridge those gaps? Is there even a way to bridge those gaps? And it doesn't seem there is, really, unless we posit some kind of god or some kind of invisible essence that kind of links everything together, that flows in between the gaps and connects everything. Possible, that is very, very possible, but it just doesn't seem to be something that we can logically come up with and say, okay, this is how it works. So instead, if we look at things as processes, everything seems to work just a bit more, just like Heraclitus said. But how does that relate to us? Well, here it is. Gaps are also something that do form part of who we are as human beings. And I don't mean atomic gaps, gaps between cells. I mean gaps in who we are. So much of our human suffering, maybe even all of it, is about gaps, is about the difference between who we are and who we want to be, where we are in life and where we thought we should be and where we want to get, what we have and what we would like to have. So we are ultimately constantly wallowing on the gaps in our lives. Once I referred to this as the canyon of expectations, and I wasn't thinking of this specific concept, I was talking about depression in that context, but it makes sense that I would refer to it that way. There's a real chasm between where we are often in our life and where we'd like to be. And that is a problem, and that's where suffering comes from. This is an old Buddhist concept, but I don't think I should credit just Buddhism because it's so human, it's so universal, that we're just constantly caught in this feeling of wanting more, wanting to be more, wanting to get somewhere, and feeling like we're never there. And it's not because that thing that we idealize as being our destination, our objective, our goal, it's not that we never reach it, it's because when we do, then we shift our feelings of desire, of want, of unfulfillment onto some new goal and destination. We keep shifting the goalposts. So we're constantly wrestling and struggling with these gaps in who we are. But 
If we start accepting that we are a process and that ultimately it is our wholeness that composes who we are, who we were, who we are, and who we will be. And that is just one thing, us as a process, us as a life, us as a subjective experience that goes through many, many phases, but that it is still one thing, as in one process, that is fluid and ever-changing, and that change is the fundamental building block of existence. Not an atom, not a thing, not a stable state of affairs, because there is no stability in life. I mean, look at me. I just made one of life's great decisions. I turned my back on a huge salary and a beautiful, beautiful career that so many people would be envious of to be a philosopher. And then as I start my new steps into this world, suddenly my mother is diagnosed with terminal cancer and I have to give it all up to come take care of her. Nothing is stable. Everything has changed and it's unpredictable and it's unexpected. So the idea of fixing our happiness on some stable state of affairs, whether it's, oh, once I get the house, once I become this person, that's crazy because once you reach it, it will change and what you want will change as well. So if instead we start to accept that life is a process and that everything is a process and that we and everything else are constant change, then we reach a realization, the Buddhist realization of what we want we already have what we want to be, we already are. Then we realize that the process of becoming a better person is actually being a better person. Like the Taoists say, the goal is the way itself. Brilliant thought process as usual, or perhaps that's a thought object. <laughs> My take on this is in another 50 seconds to wrap this we are all processes perceived as objects because in order to evaluate what we're looking at we need to start with what we are actually perceiving at the very moment of perception which makes us an, ob an object and then we can reason back to the process that created said object so in that sense the process is the precursor to objectification the glass is always half, whether it's half full or half empty, or what's in it doesn't matter. What matters is that something is in it, whether that's air, water, or any other substance, if it's half or full, it always is. That's my opinion. Hey Patrick, uh, it's Adira. So I just heard uh, your segment on Zeno's paradox. So I've never really been like a fan of philosophy. I I never really like looked into it or like heard different kind of uh, theories on it. But what you shared is very mind blowing, and I I say that because like throughout the whole time I was listening to it, I was like, okay, what's going on? And like it didn't make sense, but it's also quite logical at the same time. So I guess that's a paradox itself. Uh, so yeah, it's really cool segment. I wanna hear more about that again. So thanks, man. Hi, Patrick. I was listening to your segment on processes and objects, and it reminded me of this concept in computing of object-oriented programming, where in the beginning of computing, you used to say, 
you, computer, do this, then that. With objects, it was you, button, icon, do this, then that. And you, button, icon, in another window, do the same. And that's because they both had the same inherent properties. Kind of like your glass, half full, half empty example, could apply to a pitcher, you know, with a different size and shape, but the same property. And it wouldn't apply to a rock. And I'm thinking, uh, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but suffice to say that this topic sounds very familiar. Guys, we've reached the end of today's show, and it's been a pleasure. To me, at least. I mean, I hope it's been a pleasure to you. You know what? Scrap that. I'll settle for this. I hope it wasn't too annoying. But now, at the end of all this bullshit, a bit of self-promotion. And you know I'm not great at it, so please bear with me. So... As some of you know, I invest a lot of time and effort into bringing you quality content every single day here on The Great Everything. And to those of you listening to this show on Anchor, as God intended, it literally is every single day. There is a new show every day. Sometimes there's echoes and repeats of past segments, but there is a show going on on The Great Everything every single day on Anchor. To those of you listening to this as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, etc., etc., well, it's a new podcast every week. And it's free, of course. And I'm doing this at a considerable cost to the patience and sanity of those around me. Because imagine, knowing how annoying and pontificating I can be, having to listen to me mutter to myself all day long, and then speak into a phone and record and then mutter some more every single day. Imagine what that's doing to the sanity of those around me. I, I, I can barely imagine it. Sadly, I don't have to because I can see it on their faces. So spare a thought for the worthy people in my life who have to put up with me and the great everything. But the thing is, I'm doing all this for a reason. I had a career. You know about this. I had a career. It was a great career. It has, it gave me money, great money. It gave me prestige, respect. I went around looking great in suits and all that. But very soon, not soon enough, but soon, I realized that helping multi-corporations and global financial institutions make billions of dollars on non-performing loan portfolios, which is kind of something I was a specialist in, that wasn't going to make my life better. It would just give me money. It wouldn't do anything else for me. And my aim in life, then and now, was and is becoming a better human. I wasn't going to do that as a banking lawyer, even in the best firm in the world. So I made a choice. My choice was I want to help people. I want to help people by being a positive influence in their life. And the way I can do that is by being a good person myself first. And that's what I'm trying to do. And I'm trying to share anything I learn on that path with anyone who will listen. And I'll always do it for free. When I'm going to be a teacher, I'll be doing it for free. One day, hopefully, I'll be able to do that. I'll have the authority and the gravitas and the experience to do that. And I'll keep doing the great everything. And anything that I put out as the great everything will always be free. Even the day that hopefully there's tens of thousands of people who want to hear the bullshit I have to say, it will always be free. But here's the thing. There is something you can do to help me out. If you think that there's any value in this content, please share it. Please leave a comment on iTunes. Please rate it. Please tweet about it. Do whatever it is people do on social media. I don't know what it is because I'm shit at social media. In fact, here's something you can do. If you like this content, add me on Twitter, add me on Instagram. I think it's 
at TGE blog on Twitter and it's The Great Everything on Instagram. Add me on Facebook, The Great Everything. And actually, you know what? Here's something you can do that won't be a favor to me, but it will actually do you some good if you like my content. Go on thegreateverything.com and sign up for the newsletter. Every Sunday, you will receive a newsletter with things I've been reading, things I've been thinking about, and things I've been enjoying. So, and also things I've been making. So, anchor content, blog posts, if there are any, and little drawings that I like to do for the blog. Those drawings on the blogs, by the way, I do them. I'm very multi-talented. But anyway, point is, help me out if you think that it's worth it. If not, I'm glad you enjoy the show. I hope you call in. I hope you keep enjoying it. And if you have any positive or negative feedback, please send it over. I do listen to it, although sometimes I've been accused of ignoring it. Maybe that's true. Hopefully it isn't. But uh, I guess uh, we'll find out. Take care, guys. Arrivederci. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with Patrick. 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 One guy who's supposed to embody all our beliefs and all our values and lead us. One person can figure this shit out to get us through this. Patrick. 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 Go check out Patrick's station. It's incredible.